Okay, great. Um, well, if you guys are just joining us, we are doing a series on uh, relationships. And the reason that we are doing a series on relationships is for several reasons. One, of course, is, is that uh, it's something that's very near and dear to our hearts. When I say relationships, I, I don't mean specifically uh, necessarily dating relationships. I mean things like friendships. I mean, how long to get, get along with your parents? Uh, I, I mean... Any sort of relationship is, is what we're going to kind of be looking at all semester long. But there will be moments, for sure, where we take a look specifically at uh, dating relationships as well. Why would we do something like this? Because we actually believe, and the scriptures say this, that um, there really isn't a way to understand God's grace to us apart from understanding relationships. And we really can't understand relationships apart from knowing God. And so we need both of them to help us make sense of these things. And uh, you'll remember a couple weeks ago when we began, we started out by saying that relationships were created good. That they were made beautiful from the beginning. Last week we took a look at what happened, what went wrong. And today we want to take a look at um, how things are made beautiful again. How things are restored, as it were, especially with relationships. I don't know about you. But, uh, but I long to be loved. What about you? I think all of us in some measure long for it. Even if it's just a little bit. You may be familiar with this. There's a 33-year-old man who for over 10 months texted his ex-girlfriend 21,807 times. When she blocked his number, he called her parents and her work nonstop. It was so severe he got arrested for it. What was behind this behavior? <coughs> He wanted him, her to thank him for changing her tires. Even if it's just a little bit, the smallest bit of appreciation, all of us long to be loved. We long to be loved, even though perhaps it's hard to find. The comedian Aziz Ansari, who you guys probably know from Parks and Rec, was once asked this question, where are all the good, normal, nice, non-crazy people, Aziz? And he says, quote, this is when people say things like, go to the grocery store or go to a museum. I've gone to both and it doesn't quite work out. But maybe if I spend as much time at Whole Foods as I do drinking at bars, I'd have a different experience. <laughs> I would also be a weirdo that hangs out at grocery stores way too long. So I would have to live off those little samples. I hope it doesn't come to that. We all long to be loved. Loved by somebody. You might remember the story of Davian Only, the 16-year-old boy who pleaded in front of a church in Florida last September that somebody would adopt him. He said this, I'll take anyone, old or young, dad or mom, black, white, purple. I don't care. I know God hasn't given up on me, so I'm not giving up either. It doesn't matter who we are. We all want somebody to love us. You see, you can long to be loved too, even though it can bring about the nth degree of awkwardness. You know, think of the seventh grade boy who wants to take the girl to the dance, right? So he sells himself out completely to try to get her attention. She can just tell a regular old story and he can burst out in laughter. <laughs> oh, wait, was that just me? Because, uh, okay, cool, never mind. Um, you can long to be loved. 
You want to be loved, and you don't just want to be told that you're lovely. For those of you whose secret guilty pleasure is The Bachelor, you'll remember on Sean Lowe's season, when a girl was not given the rose, how do I know that? It's because it's my wife's cocaine. <laughs> a girl was not given the rose, she's in tears as she's being escorted off in that nice limousine. She says this, I don't want to be told anymore that I'm a great girl and that I'll find somebody, and that somebody will be lucky to have me. We long to be loved, and not just be told that we're lovely. We saw last week the relationships were broken. We were made for them, but they're not that way anymore. And this week, we are going to see that brokenness is not the final word on relationships. Relationships themselves are not doomed to failure. There is real hope. In other words, I want you to begin to see that friendships really can flourish. That dating relationships can be good. That marriage, bad ones even, can be healed. But how? How can this happen? God Himself, y'all, has begun the process of redeeming and renewing relationships themselves. He has promised to make all things new. And this includes our relationships. The Apostle John shows us here in what we read tonight, what Kira read for us, that the way God restores relationships between people is by first restoring relationships between people and Himself. Why? Why does God start there? Well, we have said for the past couple of weeks, and we'll say this again tonight, that our first fractured relationship is not with people but with God Himself. And so God, as it were, goes to the root. He goes to the core of the issue and begins work there. So the Apostle John is going to take us tonight, y'all, to the why. What prompts God to want to reconcile relationships between Himself and man? And it's one word. All of us long for it. It's love. It's love. So tonight, we're going to take a look at what it means to be saved, to being saved by love. And we'll consider the definition of love, the deception of love, and the demonstration of love. Let's take a look. Turn your eyes and find those points there as we go through them. The definition of love. I'm going to be considering first uh, verses 7 and 10. And like our uh, title suggests, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Uh, John <laughs> says, frankly, in verses 7 and 10, that love is something that comes from God. That it has at its roots, its source is something that comes from God primarily. You can see that there in verse 10 when he says this. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. So I want you to begin to see that the source of all love really is from God Himself. And that has huge implications because I'm going to suggest tonight that love really is this. That love really is costly sacrifice for the good of another. That is what God does for us as we will see. But I think for right now, I want you to see two primary things. One, I want you to see that love is primarily an action. That it is not, therefore, an emotion. Hear me out on that. That love primarily is an action, not an emotion. And that secondly, I want you to see 
that God does, he loves, as it were, out of his own decision. Those love don't possess loveliness in themselves that makes God go, oh, wow, that is so wonderful and beautiful. I want to love that thing. That's not the way God works. Might sound a little weird, so we're going to take a look at it. I want you to see that God freely of his own free will loves He's not contingent upon anything. And that really is this word. When we hear about it, you actually probably heard of it somewhere, this, this Greek word called agape. It is to love, it is the sort of love that comes in spite of, in spite of the unloveliness of a particular object. Think about it like this as an illustration. When I say I love the beach, I love it because it's intrinsically enjoyable. There are the beautiful sunsets. There are the waves. There, are, there is the sand between my toes. Oh, and the seafood. I love fresh fish. And all of that sort of stuff is on offer to me and it's an enjoyable enterprise for me to be able to go to the beach. I love it because of the things that it affords to me. But, in contrast, when our girls, when our twin two-year-olds were growing inside Laura's you know, belly, what we had was, I had for the first time in my life, I had not seen my girls. They could not give me anything. And yet I knew in an instant, I love them. They could not provide me with anything. And so that sort of love is what God is telling us, that the way that He loves us. Take a look. From all eternity, it has been this way with God and His people. He has said, this is how He loves he says that before the foundations of the world in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. When did God start loving you? If you are a Christian, long before you were even conceived of. Long before the mountains and the seas were ever made. Long before the first star began to shine. God had set His infinite and entire affections upon you. That is huge. Moreover, God is always loved like this. He freely loves unlovely people. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll remember that the people of Israel had blown it, y'all. They had screwed it up. They were a bunch of hacks. There was nothing in them that, were, that was lovely that, to make God love them. Yet, he says, take a look up on the screen. It's kind of a longer quote, but it's worth reading. He says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. Moreover, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Do you see that? I just want to highlight the reason the Lord loves you is because He loves you. Isn't that, isn't that, you it's, the logic doesn't make sense. But that's what drives God. He loves you because He loves you. And what this text is telling us here in John is that all of this begins with God. That love must find its root. That God Himself is love because he, it originates with Him. G.K. Chesterton, the British writer from almost a century ago, once wrote this. This is wonderful if you've ever seen the movie or read the play or seen the play Beauty and the Beast. Chesterton writes, there, this is what we've been talking about, there is the great lesson 
of beauty and the beast. But a thing must be loved before it's lovely. Do you know that that's what's true? That what John is saying is, is that love is first an action. It's a commitment of God on, to us, on our behalf, to make, to do good by us, to enjoy us, to see us flourish and prosper. It is not, therefore, an emotion. It is a costly action that we will see later on. But I want you to begin to see this, y'all. Hang with me on this. Your feelings, they will come and they will go. But a commitment, by definition, sticks forever. And so what I want you to begin to think of tonight is to begin to conceive of God's love for us as something that is rock solid and secure, not based on the way that we think about what love is. We're going to come to that in just a moment. But I think secondly, here's what else it does for us, y'all. I think it frees us for maybe the first time in our lives knowing that this is what is true about love itself. It frees us to actually get honest with ourselves. Here's what I mean. John is telling us that God loves people who don't have it together. So here's my question. Why do you think we have to pretend like we do? I mean, don't you want to know the freedom that comes from taking the mask off? Don't, I mean, isn't that a tiring thing? To try to keep up the facade that everything is perfect? And that everything really is all together? Some of you know how tiring that is. Some of you are exhausted right now. Because you think what God really wants is to sort of have you parade your good works. To keep your stuff together. To never be a mess. And what God is saying is, I love those sort of people. I love those sort of people who don't have it together. It makes us mad, doesn't it? Because it means this. It means all the attempts to try to live like that are an absolute sham before Him. They count for nothing. If you want me to go there, well, I will. I'm going to. The prophet Isaiah literally says that all of our best works, not our worst ones, but our best ones, are as good as, ladies, I'm sorry to be offensive here, are as good as spent menstrual garments. That's as good as they get. Do you want to be free? Do you? God offers that sort of freedom in His radical love to actually begin to get honest about who you are and about how we don't have it together. God Himself shows us the definition of love. But there's more. Let's take a look then. John has not only stated what love is, but he won't stop there. He wants to name what love is not. And that's where we turn here. And I turn, turn your eyes again to the screen where I say, the deception of love. I do put love in quotes because that's so, so important. I'm being sarcastic here in some ways. One of the things that John wants us to see is that our love for God is not how love is defined. Why would John say this? Well, it's because our love itself is weak and broken, right? Think about it. Our love fails in duration. Because our love falters, it's not complete, it's not, it's, it's broken. But God's love, His is one that loves for eternity. 
See, our love also fails in motivation, right? Because we love with unpure, with mixed motives, right? But God, He loves in ways that are not mixed with hate, not mixed with harm, not mixed with self-interest. God, our love fails in degree as well. It's never enough. We can never enough people enough. Here's my point. Jesus Himself is told, said of this, in 1 John 3.16, He says that by this we know love. That He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. There is one that loves to the utmost. That loves to the nth degree. That loves until the last breath has been drawn. I think the other reason why this is so important, you guys, is to see that when we talk about love from our angle, we don't even know what we're talking about when we say love. Y'all know what I mean by this? Like, Think about this for a second. I can say, I love cinnamon rolls and donuts. And I do. They're like heaven to me. But then in the same next sentence, I can say, I love my wife and kids. That's two radically different ways of talking about love. In other words, we define love, as it were, on our own terms, and then we try to create a scenario, as it were, uh, out of that when we think and we apply that to God's love for us. And listen, the worst thing you can possibly do is to try to say that God loves you like you love other people. That's a bad idea. That's a horrible idea. Um, how many of you guys have ever seen the movie Celeste and Jesse Forever? Adam Sandler, Rashida Jones. Okay, I'm drawing blanks on that. You can go Netflix it or pay for the five bucks on uh, you know, Apple TV. But can I tell you a little bit about the story? It's a story of a couple who have been longtime friends. They've known each other all through their high school days. They get married and they eventually, however, separate. And the movie really is about them falling apart. They've been these lifelong friends and they end up getting divorced. It's a great, I loved it. I love the movie. But it left me... The last scene left me utterly confused. And here's why. The last scene, the couple is leaving the lawyer's office, having just signed their divorce papers. They're laughing and cutting up. And it's really interesting if you're a filmmaker, the whole movie is sort of shot darkly. But, then when, but in that office, there's light for the first time in the movie. So it's kind of interesting what the filmmaker's telling us. But nevertheless... They're laughing and cutting up as they're leaving the office, sort of giving the image that everything's really good now. And for Jesse, however, the, the male figure, uh, they're sitting on a cart bench, and Celeste asks Jesse, she says, because she knows there's another woman, she says, do you love her? And he nods yes. And she replies, it's worth fighting for. And they stand, and she says, you deserve to be happy. I want that for you. Jesse replies, you too. Then, just before he kisses her, he says to her, I love you. And as I watched that scene, I just ate. Because it highlights the real confusion that surrounds what we think love is. Listen, if she is his best friend, and love is something worth fighting for, why is he not fighting for her? The message is this, I will commit to you as long as I feel it. But, you, but if you can't or don't give me those great feelings anymore, we can't be together. And that's what I suggest to, you, you, to this to you guys. That is how we define and think of what love is. That love is based on some sort of internal emotional high. 
And when you begin to think like that, all things really begin to fall apart. I want you to see that what lies at the heart of God's love for His people is nothing like this. God loves us not because of what we give to Him. God's delight for us, y'all, is rooted in Him and not in us. You see, think about this for a moment. How comforting would it be to know that God's commitment to us isn't based on our commitment to Him? Would that not be liberation for you? To know that? That He loves in spite of our faltering? You see, what keeps the relationship forever secure is not how hot or how on fire for Jesus you are. Do you realize that? You can be cold and God still loves you. That's freedom like you've never known. In fact, it is the only thing that will fuel your love for God. It's to know that there is a God who loves you despite your love for Him. Listen to what one writer put. Put this in a hymn. It is absolutely beautiful. I'll try to change the these and thys uh, to modern language. He writes this. Your work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Your blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Your love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to, the, to you, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Do you know that tonight? Do you know the freedom that comes from knowing that God loves you because He loves you, not because of how you love Him? Now, I'm going to take an aside for this moment here, and I'm going to talk about dating relationships for just a moment. We'll get into this later on throughout the semester, and this may scare some of you away, and you never want to come back, and that's fine. But listen, I want you to see that what lies at the biblical idea of love, y'all, then, is not feeling. It's not but a commitment. It's a commitment. Feeling love is sure to follow, but it cannot be first. Love first and foremost is an action of commitment first, then a feeling. Why is this so important? Because all of y'all know deep down what that's like. You're in a relationship with somebody and you begin to say, you know what, I just don't like this person anymore. I just don't like them anymore. And so we're going to call it quits. Right? And you think, and you sort of baptize that, and you go, oh, that's what God wants from me. Right? I mean, I've done it. But here's the thing. That has nothing to do with a biblical idea of love. What's at the heart of love is, is commitment. Here's the thing. Laura and I in our marriage, we've been married, we've celebrated seven years on Monday. And I want you to know that Laura and I, we, we love each other. We are so committed to each other. But we fall in and out of like with each other all the time. And here's the problem. If you don't have commitment as the baseline for everything, as soon as the like and the good feelings go, guess what happens? The relationship's over. And we would have long been done about, I don't know, maybe three weeks into our marriage. I just want you to begin to think tonight that there might be another way of thinking about relationships. That maybe we don't have it all figured out and we need to be informed by the way the Scriptures talk about what love 
really is and what it's about. Listen, don't you want something more than a mere feeling anyway? Don't you want to be in a relationship with somebody who looks at you and all of your junk, and even when there is not like, somebody remains? Somebody stays put? They see you for who you truly are, and they go, I'll take it, and I'm there, and I'm along for the ride. I want this. When the temperature comes and goes, that's something that very few people know about y'all. But it's what the Bible here is describing. I want you to begin to dream that that might be true. That that might actually be the case for you. Well, lastly, let's turn our eyes then to this demonstration of love. What do I mean by the demonstration? Well, I want to say, in short, that God didn't just come and tell us about these things, but He actually got involved and did something. We said earlier that love is primarily an action. So if love is primarily an action, where do we see God's love in action? And it's right here in these verses 9 through 12. We see God making an incredible costly sacrifice for the good of another. We see Him demonstrating His love. Look there where it says this, that God sent His only Son into the world. God didn't remain distant, y'all. He demonstrates His love by getting involved in our lives, in our mess. He takes on skin. He comes into the neighborhood, so to speak. And He gets involved. He hasn't remained distant. That's first. But secondly, you can ask this question. How does He get involved? And I want to point you there to where it says this weird phrase. What in the world is a propitiation for our sins? That word probably makes no sense, but here's what it means. A propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath and displeasure and in turn turns toward us in kindness and in favor. John is saying, in other words, that Jesus Himself was the sacrifice that turned away God's righteous displeasure with you and I. What we deserved. And when He was consumed, when His life was consumed on the cross, so was God's displeasure with us. And now, all that remains is nothing but His great love, kindness, and acceptance for us. God demonstrated, y'all, His love for us. That while we had nothing lovely in us, instead, when we were actually guilty, He died for us in Christ. And now, because of that, He loves us and accepts us as daughters and sons. I want you to please begin to see that if you begin to see that God has died for you at your worst, you can't screw things up and make them worse. I know that doesn't make sense. I'm saying, if He died for you, you can't do worse than your worst. Just what happens if 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 I begin to live in this new life with God and I screw it up? Then what will happen? Hear me. He loved you at your worst. He loved you at your worst. You can't do any, you can't, you cannot outsend God's love for you. That is the great promise of the gospel. That's what's so rich about, about it all. And when that begins to sink down into your blood, you can begin to give that away. And so I quote, just a little humble brag, 
Uh, I quote uh, the new Judah and the Lions CD. Uh, if you've not heard it yet, get it. Uh, here's, one, here's one line from their song called Love in Me. It says this, that I've got this love in me, that it's not just mine to keep. Like treasure that's buried deep, I come alive and I set it free. It's meant to be given away. Will it be costly? Absolutely it will. It's costly to love people, right? But it costs God everything for Him to love you. Last thing I want to drive home, this isn't a point necessarily, but it's just something I've got to say to y'all. I want you to see that as far as relationships go, this is why vulnerability is so hard and yet necessary for love. To love another person will cost you your self-protection. You will risk being hurt by being in a relationship. You will risk it. It is inevitable. And some of us are so scared of entering into a relationship because we're afraid of getting hurt. Now listen, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. Some of you experience so much pain in your life at the hands of another person that there might be a little bit more caution than just sort of hopping in the next girl or guy that comes along, right? But what I am saying is that inevitably, when you end up in a relationship, you will risk. It is impossible not to. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. This is one of my favorite quotes of anything that he ever writes. And I'm so glad to be able to share it with you guys. He writes, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything. And your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. And void all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The law is to be vulnerable. You realize then that most of us are not afraid of relationships not working out. What we're actually afraid of is them working out. Because the pain of having a relationship break up is but a pinprick compared to a lifelong posture of making yourself vulnerable and dying to yourself at the hands of another person. That is what the gospel is about, though. Because here is what I mean to say. The reward is far better, too. The risk is great, but the reward is better. At least, that's what Jesus thought. Jesus was seeking His reward. He sought it through great vulnerability, right? By laying His life down. And... He thought it way better to become vulnerable, even to death on a cross. Not at the risk of his life, y'all, but at the cost of it. At the cost of his life to get the reward and not become vulnerable and not receive it. The stakes were high, but his chips were all in. What was his reward? Do you remember what we read from Deuteronomy chapter 7? It was his treasured possession. Now, was that some large sum of money? Some sort of heavenly change out there that God was going to give them? No. It wasn't money. It wasn't stuff. 
Do you know what God's treasured possession is? It's you. You are His reward. You are. That is amazing. That that is God's reward. You are the thing that He risked everything for. And so in turn, y'all, you are not saved because you are lovely. You are lovely because God has loved you. You are His reward. You have been saved through relationship with Him so that now you can begin to bring His love even to your enemies. Will you pray with me? Our Father in Heaven, would You take these things, would You make them real in our hearts? Would You show us that these things are true of us, that we long to be loved, and that it's a good thing to have that longing? Lord, would You help us to begin to think maybe for the first time about what real relationship would be like with our friends, with our parents, what it looks like to move into relationship with them. We so desperately need it, Lord, and we walk around like cripples not knowing what to do. Come to us, we pray, and help us. It's in your name. Amen.